listening to the GamesIndustry.biz podcast. I'm James Batchelor, and this week I'm joined by... Matt Handrahan. Brendan Sinclair. And Chris Tring. We're going to be talking about the biggest stories from the past week. Uh, starting with, we're going to look at the, the rise of indie publishers. Now, this isn't necessarily news, but we've uh, we've seen a number of stories recently. We spoke to Sumo Group, who've launched their own publishing arm called Secret Mode. Uh, a few weeks before that, Playtonic have launched Playtonic Friends. Um, I was going to throw, kind of throw this as like, well, you know, why are we seeing so many developers uh you know creating their own publishing arms but as you guys were talking about just just before we uh, start recording the answers are quite obvious so i'll kind of i'll pass past you like we'll, we'll start with that like, like why why this is happening and then dive into like the more interesting aspects of this well uh, but i think i think it's worth pointing out that that it's more or less obvious depending on who it is i mean it's so there's a there's a big difference between sumo uh opening a publishing arm which is a publicly listed company with hundreds and hundreds of employees has published its own games before so on and so forth that that them opening a publishing arm with all those resources makes a degree of sense that say platonic which has never even published one of its own games does not right so i think it's less that why are we seeing loads of publishers because we've been seeing loads of publishers for ages and ages and ages i think it probably has gathered pace a little bit of late but i feel like it's getting harder and harder to kind of see the connective tissue between the different publishers that do 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 establish themselves. Um, but between Sumo fundamentally and Playtonic, you've got three very very different uh, groups of people with three very very different levels of resources and skill sets, and yet they're all fundamentally fundamentally going into the same exact line of business. And and that's when it starts getting a little bit uh, murky. Yeah. Well, is End Dreams as well? End Dreams also launched a publishing oh, yeah, division making it four in five weeks i think it's a bit of a coincidence that these things land at the same time as matt said it's it's been they're all british as well aren't uh, they? So yes yeah well british interesting so we had a lot of uh, we did the indie publishing awards and a lot of the publishers that were put forward were british and i think that's actually to do with you know i'm happy to actually talk about why because why is obviously why wouldn't you publish yourself if you've got relationships with the stores you don't need the physical retail component anymore. It's a lot easier to be a publisher today. All you need is marketing, PR, community. Um, you might want a physical retail opportunity. Um, you you want somebody who can manage the store relations. But really, you can outsource a lot of that. So, you know, um, Sumo's only got four staff in their publishing team. Platonic's publishing team is only ever so slightly smaller. It's three people. Um, and uh, I don't know, I can't remember Endreams' number, but the, they don't need a lot of people to run a publisher. It's not that hard to set up a publisher. So if you've got those relationships, you've got that credibility in the market, then why not? And, you know, Matt says there's a difference between Platonic and it, Sumo. There is. Sumo's obviously got a lot more resources. They can put real money behind games in the way that Platonic can't. But Platonic did launch their Kickstarter themselves. They have community team in Taos. They've got, they, you know, they work with Renaissance PR and launch a ukulele. So they, they have some of those relationships. So there's some similarity in, in that in that in that bit but the um the the thing is that that's one reason why it's not that hard to do the other reason why and it's the reason why sort of you're seeing a lot in the uk at the minute is that um uh, all the big companies laid off loads of you know the activisions uh the eas uh playstation even you know these massive companies laid off a lot of their marketing and pr and, and sales stuff they don't need as many they're not publishing as many games they don't need they don't have as many store relationships to look after everything's a lot more global so all these people are suddenly made um you know they're available and so you've got the situation we've got these publishers that they've got these developers that can know how to publish themselves and got talent that's in the market they're able to pick up and 
Um, I found it. I found it quite funny that uh, I interviewed Curve at the end of last year. The new CEO of Curve is the former VP of Publishing at Sega. The uh, the new uh, the head of Secret Mode um, is uh, the former VP of Digital Distribution at Sega, and the uh, head of um, uh, End Dreams is uh, Publishing Division is uh, David from Sega. You know, it's Sega. You know, went for a bit of a change a couple of years ago, and here we are seeing all of those staff turn up at developers or, or independent publishers. So there is a why. Um, it, it, that's in terms of why that's sort of what, what we're seeing, and it's a phenomenon that's been happening around the world. I think, like with anything with indie publishing, it's a lot harder though. It's easy to set up. It's really hard to be a successful indie publisher. It doesn't matter how big you are. Um, and uh, often I find uh, I have have a bit in my head where I think they're going to succeed and they're not. And then a few years later, the company that I thought was going to succeed, I can't see anymore. And the one that uh, uh, I sort of written off at the start. You know, they've just had a big hit with a with a Valorant or something like that. Um, but yeah, it is a it, it is. I think we're going, it's going to continue because you know Bethesda has just been acquired by Microsoft. That publishing team. I'm not saying they're going to be laid off, but expect them to start leaving and not getting replaced. Um, Codemasters. You know, EA doesn't. EA is just laid off. Or, you know, only a few years ago they laid off all of their UK PR and marketing teams, and they have got another UK PR and marketing team. So. Um, uh, you know, expect some of them to sort of end up at other companies down in, in a couple of years' time as well. The thing I always get interested by is, as Matt said, like you've got three three very recently set up publishing companies that have different resources, different backgrounds, different experience, but are all essentially the same company, um, or at least offering the, a very similar kind of service. What throws me, certainly over the last four years since I've been at GI, is the sheer number of indie publishers that arrive and don't seem to have a distinct angle now end dreams is different end dreams is specifically publishing vr games because they are specializing in vr and vr is a very kind of niche market you, there aren't many publishers you can think right i have a vr title i need a publisher who do i go to it, it's difficult to pick one out but i think about like the sheer number of new indie publishers we've covered over the last few years i think the only one i can think of that's got a kind of distinct remit is a uh, fellow traveller who focus on narrative sort of games. Um, it feels like a lot of these publishers have almost like a scattershot of like, we, we're just looking for any title that could be a hit. It doesn't matter what genre, what style, what presentation. Like, I feel like that distinct lack of identity makes just, it makes the market feel even more crowded than it actually is. Well, I think that um, on some level, the reason why the reason why I mean to I, you know I am going to in a roundabout way address what you just said Batch but the reason why there, there are so many more publishers setting up is because there just are so many products out there on the market um, it, it's hard to tell what what the, the kind of the breakout hits are going to be publisher can play a role there I mean obviously plays a pretty significant role there but I mean there, there's always games to sign and I think when you reach a certain size and you've got a certain amount of resources as Chris said you, you might only need two people like there, there comes a point where it's like, well, if you've got some of this knowledge why not and, and in that sense you don't really need a specific angle um, at least not not one when you come right out of the gate. I think you can look at something like say, you know, Annapurna, uh, which is an example of a publisher. Which I think you can kind of yeah you, you have a sense of what an Annapurna game is, but it's pretty hard to describe. I think there's just the taste of the people there kind of goes towards certain kinds of games, and 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 there is there is an identity, but that one formed over a couple of years. Um, I think you're right with. Hmm, I, I, you know, you wouldn't want to project too much, but the the 
the impression I got specific, certainly of Platonic and to a degree Sumo is, you know, we've, we've got these relationships, we've got some people, why not just become a publisher, you know, without, without, you know, and, and that, and that really is it. But then I, I'm not sure that a publisher, I'm not sure that a publisher really needs to be a devolver. I think one thing with indie publishing that you've seen is because of a company like Devolver, being one of the the early leading lights in, in the indie publishing boom is the assumption became that everyone has to have an identity or an attitude or some way and then you know and you can have and it can be useful but there's not like an infinite number of different angles to take on publishing on a fundamental level publishing is about signing games and, and getting them to the right audiences and building communities around those games you, you don't need an angle beyond the ability to convince people that you can do that um, the, the question I, I, I certainly, you know, I raised before and I still have now is, you know, like when you come to Platonic, I'll use it as an example. It's not the only example of a company, that, of a developer that has sort of moved into publishing with, you know, very little like end-to-end product publishing experience of its own. Like Chris says, they were involved in certain parts of the publishing around the ukulele games, but Team 17 is the publisher of those two games. And, and maybe, you know, you can observe that process and think, well, you know, we would have done that differently, we would have done that differently, and that that can be learning in and of itself. But, you know, what 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 is the pitch? So, so for example, I can imagine that if you are a developer with a game that is really good, really promising, ticks a lot of market trend boxes that they can basically play publishers off against each other right now. Like there's enough publishers out there. I've certainly spoken to enough people in the more established publishers, the Devolvers, the Raw Furies, to know that it is a little bit of a bun fight out there for the best games. There's such competition to sign stuff up. There's lots of stuff, but the really good, really promising stuff, you have to get there quickly because there's too many other people going for that signature. What does a Platonic say to people to say, sign with us and not the other the, the, our nearest rival when they can't even say we published a single game this is this is the thing where I'm like is there are we now in the realm of too many publishers are we now in the realm of it's so easy to set up a publisher that you know you, you developers really need to start thinking about whether that publisher can can give them what they want yeah, yeah well um, i think i think i think you've got a point because here's the thing with platonic i immediately thought right if anyone's got a game that's a bit like something rare used to make right Platonic would be probably a good partner because it's the old rare team, right? So you think, oh, it'd be good to have some, you know, people that have that experience and know how that development talent to see over my toes. That's an appeal. If you've got a VR game, you might go with End Dreams. Yeah? If you've got, I can, I can easily, actually, oddly, I can see Sumo publishing similar games to what Platonic would want to publish because Sumo had Snake Pass and I, and I kind of see that being there. You said, James used the word identity and, and you, you're, not, you're not, it's interesting, identity does help, like, but a lot of it, you have to work out what it is over time because it's up to your team. Um, team 17, you knew what their identity was going to be because they made worms. And so it's it's not surprising that their games have been sort of more family-friendly, chaotic multiplayer games or retro games. That's been their their thing. Um, and, uh, but, you know, a lot of others, like the Curves and stuff, they didn't start off with Human Fall Flat. That was, there was, those weren't the sort of games they were making. It sort of became that over time. Um, but um, going... Uh, so, but the... A lot of the times, what I find really interesting is so many, it's just really hard. And we always think about the indie successes. So you mentioned Devolver or, or you know, Tiny Build, like lately, um, or um, uh, the, uh, uh, Team 17 or Curves. But Human Fall Flats and Overcooks and um, Among Us and all those sort of games, they're rare. Hello, neighbors. They're sort of, they're, they're, they're rare. They don't happen most of the time. Most, and these games, 
most indie games make a little bit of money. Um, not most indie games. You can have an indie game that does moderately well and makes you a little bit of money, but it's never going to be. You know, it's really hard to build a big business on the back of it. And there's so many massive companies, and I mean huge ones, that have either sort of given up. Like Activision had Sierra, they gave up. Um, some of them I've not heard from in a while. I, I've not heard from Jagex's publishing arm. I don't know if anyone else has, you know, for a while. They built this big publishing arm with a load of uh, ex Endream staff and stuff. Uh, not uh, not Endreams. Um, uh, oh, what's the it's the Guild Wars? NCSoft. Um, NCSoft. Um, and uh, uh, Frontier Publishing, I know it was only a couple of years ago, but I've not heard much from them. These are big companies with big budgets, and and they've just not they've not had that moment. And I don't know if they're still, you know, Square Enix Collective. They did it for ages. I've not heard from them in ages. Um, and then you look at you look at even the ones that are, are are still active, and you sit there and think, God, it's hard. Like Private Division, Take Two, you know, indie publishing label. They they signed some really big games, and you know, human is it Humankind, the one with Patrice Desolet's game. Didn't ancestors, ancestors, humankind. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. It, it didn't really do anything. They had that story um, uh, last week about that developer close. That was a private division published time. The V V One Interactive, and then um, and then the one game that they sort of did that at least generated a lot of attention. I don't know how well it did, but it was the Outer World, uh, Outer World, Outer Worlds. I was get this one right. Um, ended up getting picked up by Microsoft. So even if you um, even if you uh, have a a hit. There's no chance that it's not yours. Um, it, it can easily be bought by someone else or taken away from you. Um, it's just really hard to be a publisher. And some of the ones that I see, in, in even the ones that are the established names and the experience and, and stuff like that, it's it's still a little bit of that hip-driven mentality. Like you still need. I remember ten years ago, we used to say, "Find your Minecraft." Um, and you know, all these developers and a load of publishers did find their Minecraft, but um, most don't. And, and, it, and, I think, and I think that's the, the thing when I look at all these new publishers emerging. Are they, do, you know, are they in it? How much are they in it for the long haul? Are they really building a business based on a couple of moderately successful games? They'll publish some when they have time. They'll publish some when they won't. Or are they uh, going to disappear in a few years' time? Um, I look at, I, I mean, if I was going to be a betting person, I think Endreams is probably in a good position. It's VR. It's got an identity. Sumo's got its... Um, internal games to publish so it's got a sort of constant stream of titles that will look after itself um platonic who knows you know <laughs> um uh, fundamentally same thing um they're a little bit different because they're not a developer but um it's um yeah it, it's uh it's just really difficult and i'm always and it's a but it's a it's huge it's a huge market i think one of our events last year uh, one of our investment events had something like a hundred publishers come to it i didn't even realize there were a hundred it's uh and it's just every single. I, I I don't think it being difficult is is anything new though, and I, I think this sort of ties into the question about like what's the identity of these companies. Uh, like we're we're still I feel fairly early in the like in this era of independent game development being a really viable kind of option for for a lot of teams, and how many independent developers really have like established an identity because it feels like uh, to me most of them might have you know two hits or or on, on the on the outside like super giant games is the first one to really spring to mind is like wow they've actually got a track record now between bastion and transistor and hades um oh i can't remember the esports one they did in between but they're they're like they Pyre. are forming Pyre. Thank you. They're forming an identity. And, and I can, 
I can get that now. But so many of these, so many of these developers have only been through one or two games and they're like, they're not known as having an identity beyond just what their hit is. And it's so hard for them to hit again and, and to follow up one success with another, especially if it's different in any way, shape or form. And, and I feel like that's kind of the same, the same problem with a lot of these newcomers to the indie publishing market is like they have a hit or they have had success in development on their own, but applying that to other people and to other titles is, is more of a crapshoot than, than maybe you would have expected. Like there, there's more, there's more to publishing than just, Hey, we know the people in the press and we know people at the storefronts and we can buy some ads for this. And it's, so so you see sort of like a similar uh failure rate as you do with with development studios uh making games and yeah and in the end it's 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 easier for those companies that are doing this as a as a thing on the side to just kind of like cut bait when it looks like it's not working for them yeah i think that's an interesting point because i remember i you know i feel like this is a go-to example for me a lot of the time but i but i just genuinely feel like it's a what what no more robots does is is genuinely impressive and you know mike rose was a journalist and knew him from from back then anyway and i remember talking to him about when he when he first started up the publisher about you know kind of what gave him the confidence to do it and he he genuinely said it's not really to do with knowing people at storefronts and stuff. It's actually he just felt very very confident that he really knew how to kind of slice the market and and reach people and engage audiences and so on and so forth. And when you look at I mean we, we publish a lot of, of of material, you know, talking to no more robots, It'd be very helpful with our academy section, sort of talking to people about how to build up Steam wish wish lists and 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 construct a Steam page so it's the best possible. Uh, best possible thing for your game and the level of detail the level of insight the the innovation when it comes to using discord the 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 clever thinking around marketing and building communities i mean this is i i wonder what the you know to go back to it i wonder what the pitch of uh you know just because i think a lot of publishers probably say almost exactly the same thing you know you keep your ip or you know deal with your one-to-one and we'll get involved early and then you, you can look at all of the intro pieces to these new publishers and they all read roughly the same very few people are saying anything different um, but then you see a company like no more robots it comes on it's got a staff of two people and it's making you know relatively speaking very very big hits um out of games that that, that needn't have got anywhere and that really is just down to uh, a very to very smart people behind it who are entirely focused and dedicated on helping the this kind of small group of games to succeed. I wonder how well you can be an indie publisher in today's market when you're actually still, you know, when it's just two people in a studio that's also making games at the same time. Um, I wonder what the what the thinking is there, or what, why there is any confidence that that, that can work or that can happen. Uh, again, I do feel like it in... While the size of the teams may be similar, I do think a company like Sumo or a company like Endreams is just in a better position to run a kind of successful and focused publishing arm than, say, a Fundamentally Games or a, or a Playtonic, which is just going to be, yeah, it just, just seems like a different proposition altogether. But 
you, you very rarely see a new publisher that genuinely seems to bring something new to the scene and something new, a new way of thinking about games that can genuinely offer offer a developer something they can't already get in a dozen other places or, as Chris says, a hundred other oh, yeah. places. I actually, um, interesting, the thing that oh, I've done so many of these interviews now, I almost know, what, I almost don't even need to prepare for the interviews. <laughs> I know what questions I'm going to ask. I almost can predict what answer I'll get. And I always ask that question about what do you offer and the question is, oh, we're really friendly, or we're uh, we understand what developers want. Half, you know, or, or we're developers ourselves, so we know we, we we sort of understand the pressures. Some I know some developers that don't want to work with other developers. They just they want to work with someone who knows how to sell their game. Um, and it's quite a different, you know, it's, what people want varies. And um, uh, you know, I, I think what the one that jumped out at me out of all of them was Sumo talking about, or sorry, Secret Mode talking about how they were interested in signing games that have already been released. And that just haven't done very well. That got buried under another game, or came out at the wrong time, and giving it another shot in the arm because of the because of that phenomenon that you're getting of games that sort of end up having their big hit, you know, big hit moment like a year after release, or or two years in some cases, or when they're in the middle of developing the sequel, it suddenly breaks out, um, uh, which I thought was quite an interesting one. I've not heard that before um, of a publisher trying to sign something that's already been out there in the market. But it's well, um, at least it's at least it's different, right? Like it's 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 a uh, it's a category of developer that the vast majority of publishers wouldn't be looking at, and that is something I think that you do need to think about. So yeah, that is uh, probably is is to Sumo's credit or whatever they're called. Secret mode. They talked about community a lot. That was the thing. <laughs> the word they kept coming back to. I was trying to find something more more something I could talk about. A little bit, you know, Team 17's big thing to begin with was, you know, and other other places offer it now. Team 17 to begin with, to begin with was but they'd help you make the game. Like one of their things is you got the Overcooked team who um, made this multiplayer game, and they just didn't, they didn't want to be any bigger than two people. So Team 17 said, "Oh, for the sequel, if you want to do a big online multiplayer thing, you obviously don't have a big enough team to handle um, sort of that sort of connected gameplay sort of thing, but we can do that for you." And that was. That's obviously that was an appeal of those, but now everyone offers those services, and if they don't offer those services, they know where to outsource them to. Um, so it, it, it's it is now on that on that you know who does have that relationship, who does know how to build the communities, and who can. Um, you're right, you know, we could build. A, I bet you, all of us together, we could build a pretty good publisher right now if we wanted to. Right, well, this is the PR agency we'll work with, and this is the marketing agency we'll do. We'll deal with. We'll sign a deal with keywords or whatever for outsourcing stuff. Um, and then we've all we all know Nintendo, Microsoft, and Sony, and Steam, and and Apple, and, and there's our there's our we could probably do it, but it, it's it's more than that. It's um it's it's about knowing how to talk to the, identify who the audience is, and then speaking to them. And it's that sound makes it sound really simple, but as no more robots, sort of it, it does require a real real in depth understanding of every of way of everything that's new and where people are and discords and all that kind of thing i do have to ask what's the identity of a games industry dobbies game what's the what's what's the theme what, what's our remit uh, <laughs> well the thing is be, the remit would be what we all like isn't it and i think there'll be what loot boxes yeah <laughs> loot boxes <laughs> yeah. job done <laughs> microtransaction based sports games um yes but on, on mobile <laughs> yeah that's it all the, all the things we like the best. <laughs> oh dear.
back in January, we did our first uh, 10 years ago segment on the podcast. We've got another one now uh, following Brendan's recent column. 10 years ago this month brings us up to GDC 2011. Um, Brendan did a great write-up of the uh, discussions that we're having around there around social games and mobile games. And I'm now going to pass to you because you picked out kind of the uh, the best highlights. But there were, there were themes to this conversation. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not sure I'm going to recommend people actually read this column. Uh, most months doing the 10 years ago this month column is like really fun for me and I look forward to it and it's great this month it just really kind of it was so tense (laughs) and it got me anxious the entire thing because March of 2011 was uh, sort of there was there was a whole lot happening in in the industry at the time um, we had seen the, the console market had, had sort of had a lot of problems at that point. The, the, Wii was getting long in the tooth and not really being well supported anymore. The 360 and PS3 were also like, it's the end of a cycle. They've been out for four or five years, but there is no, there's no new consoles, no reinforcements on the way. Microsoft's even talking about how they just released Connect, and that'll that'll extend the cycle for another five years. Um, there was the global economic meltdown, and and so many, you know, the HD generation put so many people out of business, so many developers, um, so many layoffs at major companies because of the the economic meltdown, and then. On top of that, you've got the industry dealing with digital distribution, uh, just starting to come to grips with that and the new business models that it really makes viable, uh, like free to play. And we also have uh, the iPhone getting traction and uh, mobile gaming be kind of realizing the promise that it had had for a decade or so at that point. And all of this made kind of I feel like I made everyone in the industry just really on edge heading into uh, the Game Developers Conference March of 2011. I forgot to mention social games also. That was a big part of it because Facebook, Farmville, you know, the the whole going viral by bugging people to help you with your farm sort of uh, user acquisition scheme had been had been huge to that point. So everyone that was involved in the way things used to be were were very anxious about all these changes and how the things that they liked about the way things used to be were no longer going to be the same. Everyone looking at where the real heat was in the industry, mobile and social, was looking at it and looking at the ways that they were making money. In social, you had uh, like people like Jonathan Blow were saying social games are evil, just flat-out evil. And then in mobile games, you've got... This is uh, this is right when the industry had kind of decided, you know what? Best price for an iPhone game, 99 cents. And all of a sudden, it just became really, really hard to sell anything that wasn't Minecraft for more than 99 cents. We hadn't we hadn't quite like leaned entirely into free to play in mobile just yet. So everyone is just kind of freaking out anxious about everything the the gdc keynote um was from nintendo president satoru iwata it's called disrupting development and he just talked about how everything was devaluing games 
These platforms, referring to smartphones and social networks, have no motivation to maintain the high value of video game software, Wada said. For them, content is created by someone else. Their goal is just to gather as much software as possible because quantity is what makes the money flow. The value of video game software does not matter to them. And I think Iwata was absolutely right about that. Um, and even though Nintendo has no problem selling full-price games right now, even they have kind of, like, like that is sort of the dominant model, and even Nintendo conceded to this. I mean, until recently, you could get, you know, you'd look on the Switch, view all games, sort by price low to high, and things were selling for as low as one cent. You know, you could get dozens of games for under 10 cents each. And it, it just, the the games industry in all platforms, I feel, ha- really has become a, a matter of quantity, of just gathering enough offerings so that your cut from them uh, pays, pays off for you, no matter how good the quality of the offerings actually are. There's not much, there's not much curation going on in the industry these days, I don't think. It's true, Belna. So yeah, I, I think Iwata was absolutely correct. And actually, I, I think it's striking how defensive a lot of developers were when you look at look at some of the talks given at GDC that year. But you can't say that many of them have turned out to be wrong. Um, I think the the reality is settled in slightly different ways to what they imagined it would. But a lot of these fears did sort of play out in one form or another. Well, one comment that did strike me though, in on that point about storefronts. Just so Hideki Kono, also um, from Nintendo, said, um, if somebody said to me, and this is about games costing, you know, 99 cents. Um, if, if as a customer, somebody said to me, hey, we've got Call of Duty on your portable device and it's only going to cost you 100 yen. Yeah, I'd be super stoked, really excited about that. And I'd be really excited to see a great game at a really cheap price. But I just don't think you could make a game that's as immersive and as big as, let's say, Call of Duty or any other large title and sell it at that price point. It's just not possible. So while on the one hand, storefronts were then and still are, these are very accurate um, uh, evaluation from, from, from um, fuck, sorry. Satoru Iwata. Satoru <laughs> A very accurate uh, analysis from Iwata there. On the product level, you... I'm not a Call of Duty player. Um, I know plenty of Call of Duty players, and a lot of them people think that Call of Duty Warzone is every bit as high quality as any Call of Duty product that's ever been released. So on the one hand, you have storefronts that are just choked with content where, you know, that has absolutely devalued games on a, I guess, a per product basis. But when you can isolate the individual, that, that part of it, that idea that you cannot possibly have a high, this, this kind of high quality, immersive, high value product, and give and, and put it out there for such a low price. That that hasn't proved to be the case at all. Um, uh, I think some people debate whether the, the kind of the free to play games are as high quality as as, as the the AAA premium counterpart. But I think you'd be hard pushed to say an Apex Legends or a Call of Duty Warzone is much better or worse than a than a shooter you pay sixty pounds for. Yeah, I, I I actually found it. I I didn't really see it as I wasn't. I like looking back on that time. Is there was a fit that you know 99 cents games was going to devalue video games um and it sort of didn't it did i mean it didn't it didn't um because now not you know cheap games free games is per is the norm and not just the normal mobile they're in console they're on pc they're everywhere but it didn't stop premium priced games i think that was the big thing that everyone i remember at the time uh, trying to 
cast my memory back, I was on I was on a retail title back then, and that was a real fear. Why would anyone buy a, a fifty pounds, forty pounds, forty dollars, whatever video game from the store where they can get uh, a next to nothing Angry Birds on a on a mobile? But um, it did. They did. You know, the console industry bounced back a couple of years later, um, and um, and now we're at the situation where game prices have increased uh into in that triple a space yes nintendo have got some free games out there things like tetris 99 subscription based games and stuff like that but they're also releasing skyward sword hd at full price <laughs> you know so the, what what happened is you sort of got a, a sort of this dual market sort of appeared but um where there's there are these games that people do think are worth that amount of money i don't know how it all works like it's all psychological i did a thing on value a while ago um and it's all it's, it's all down to why am i not willing to why am i getting upset by the fact that Disney Plus increased by a couple of quid, yet I'm happy to spend £15 going down to the cinema to watch a two-hour film. I don't know. But it, it, it's, it didn't quite pan out, I think, as the fears were, you know, the heightened idea that the console industry was was under serious threat from mobile. I think perhaps the Wii was and the DS was, um, and, you know, we saw that. But, um, you know, the console industry bounced back. It boomed again, and um, games are, you know, there are games, you know, at $70 and there are games that are free and um, they seem to be living side by side quite harmoniously at the minute. Um, so I, I, looked at, I thought it was fascinating. It reminded me of that, of that, of that era and about how concerned everyone was. And in the end, it turned out that, you know, we can actually do both. So I think there was also a lot of anxiety from the player base at that time. Um, you had the, the, Wii uh, kind of, brought in motion controls for people and expanded the target audience along with the DS uh, to older people and to women in a way that it hadn't been before for core gaming platforms. Uh, and I, th- I think there definitely was this um, sense among a lot of the traditional gamer audience, maybe that they were, that they were losing something. Um, you, you could look at all of the, like there was just almost an exodus of quote unquote, big name talent that was going away from the kind of games that those, that core audience loved to these new fields in social and mobile. Um, uh, Brenda Brathwaite, now Romero, uh, was talking at GDC. Uh, she, she and doom designer, John Romero had, uh, had left the traditional PC segment in in order to, to do loot drop make social games on Facebook. Uh, Louis Castle, Westwood Studios co-founder, Command and Conquer, he had just taken a job at Zynga. Uh, Will Wright, um, you know, SimCity, Spore, uh, he'd left EA to, to start Stupid Fun Club and and work on, he wasn't really clear what, but, you know, he said it all, all we can say is that it's, it's not shrink wrap, AAA, Xbox only. It's stuff that's a little more diffuse, mobile, web, and I, I, I think for, for a lot of people, um, those that saw trends with downloadable content changing the way that we had just kind of become accustomed to what games were, there was so much, so much, uh, change happening that there was just like a, a general anxiety about the state of the industry. And I think if you fast forward a, a few years to uh, Gamergate, I think actually a lot of the ugliness that we saw there um, was was probably cultivated in in the years up to that with with just the you know complete 
upheaval that the industry had been going through because so many of the so many of the changes that were made uh saw resistance and pushback from gamers because they weren't always in gamers best interests um and and i think that sort of that that kind of primed the pump for uh bad faith actors to come in and, and take that anxiety and then direct it towards uh much more you know objectionable and indefensible targets hmm. now, i remember um around 20 no it would be earlier than 2011 because i was still writing for magazines but sort of late in my time as a magazine journalist so it's probably about 2009 when ea acquired playfish i wanted to go playfish was a uk-based company um it was i think the ceo was christian sagastrala who went um went on to found super evil megacore i wanted to go up to london and to meet to meet the management of playfish and kind of talk to them about what they who they were what they were doing and kind of what led EA to spend, I think it was around 400 million on acquiring the studio. And I really, really had to try to get approval for that feature from my editor. Because even though EA, you know, a company that made games that frequently featured on the cover of the magazine and the, the, the kind of would be lead reviews in the re- review section, saw fit to spend hundreds of millions on this company, uh, the it was just seen as such a completely different thing. And there was a sense of almost like defensiveness about it. Like, why should we cover this, you know, these, these kind of crap games, these games over on Facebook or, or whatever else, these games on mobile. Um, consumer, the consumer journalists, I think, mirrored to a degree the kind of the, the unrest and the, the, the distaste that was going on in the, I guess you'd call it the core gaming audience at that time, this feeling of having your hobby kind of invaded and changed and, and kind of dealing with these forces that were coming in. Like, I, th- I think even within the press, there was a sense that things were changing and it wasn't always to everybody's taste. A lot of pushback against that. And I actually think it took a long, long time after that. You, think you, could, uh, you could argue even now that, that a lot of the game press still hasn't quite figured out the best way to deal with this free-to-play mobile stuff. Yeah, the, even like the one the one story from 10 years ago that that really spoke the most to me about this uh, was a story we had about the announcement of Insomniac Click, the resistance and Ratchet and Clank developer launching a new mobile division. And uh, Insomniac's chief creative officer had a, had a post on their website about it, and he he talked about it the way you talk about layoffs. You know, he, he called it a pragmatic necessity. You know, it's like he's breaking the news to everyone that <laughs> we're going to make mobile games. And in, he was, he's just, he frames it so uh, fearful of, of the Insomniac fan base revolting about this. He says, uh, with the exception of myself, everyone working in the group has been newly hired specifically for their expertise in this space. All our existing teams are still 100% dedicated to making unforgettable AAA console experiences with our proprietary blend of double rainbows and awesome sauce. Please, please, please don't hate us. Yeah. Well, the, can- la- the, the last <laughs> bit, I added the last bit about please, please. But it, it's it's completely implied. Oh, like like reading this, it's it's staggering how how apologetic they are about announcing a new division. Well, and, uh, if you fast forward whatever 
eight years and Diablo Immortal announcement reaction goes down, you think, oh, actually, you know, it's probably quite yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm not saying that it was <laughs> that it was a uh, irrational fear or or one that that had no cause, but uh, it is just it's 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 baffling to to see people the thing is um, it's it's hard to argue against the economics of going towards mobile if you know what you're doing and if you can make a hit like i okay, I, i'm a big fan of that game company's um work uh you know like flow flower journey mainly journey um and i have to i have to confess i've not tried more than half an hour like sky children of the light but my understanding is like that that game is raking in millions and that game is is probably more successful than journey flow or flower ever were in terms of money generated in terms of people playing which you know journey is one of the best games of that that generation and like and, you know I, I, my son is still playing journey now as in right now he is downstairs playing journey like it's such a phenomenal title and the idea that we won't we it is entirely feasible or possible that we won't see another game like journey from that studio on consoles because They've, they've found a mobile hit and they've found that they, it's a it's a social game that they can bring people together in a way that they couldn't on consoles because, you know, smartphones are a lot more ubiquitous. You've got a much larger um, audience. I vague remember there possibly being talk of like cross-play between different platforms and it's coming to Switch later. Like it's, I can, I can understand why they are not going to, they're unlikely to make another console game but I find that disappointing. Not grab your pitchforks and torches and head to Reddit to complain, kind of disappointing, but disappointing. But like I say, you can understand it. It's coming to Switch, yep. as you said. As, as, a, as a fan of arcades and the Sega Dreamcast and the PlayStation Vita <laughs> and single-player story-driven games without downloadable content or games-as-a-service elements... Uh, yeah, that's that that seeing the entire industry kind of go away. You don't want it to go is a is a very uh, familiar uh, sore spot for me. But, you know, but so it's <laughs> Brendan. I think you know I have a thing with it because um, I see all of my friends, and, I, and it's an anecdotal example, so I'm not entirely sure how true it is globally, but I feel it's true. Um, so that I'm going to say it. The um, is uh, is I feel mobile games. Um, it just I play more mobile games than I play console games. And that's not because I want to. It's because I, I don't have time to play. You know, console games is is, is, a, is is time sink. It involves sitting down in front of your TV. It involves sometimes shutting off the world around you and, and sort of playing a lot of games. And the older that you get, the amount of times you have to do that, generally speaking, is, is, it gets reduced. And I can play mobile games all the time. I can play it when I go to the loo. I can play it when I'm walking down the street. You shouldn't do that. Don't do that, kids. Unless you're playing Pokemon Go, in which case it's fine. The um, it's 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 a, it's a it, it, you know, and I I actually think one of the things the industry really struggled to do after the Wii and the DS in particular, they just stopped speaking to people who are who have the um, who who want to play uh, who, who you know the amount of people that I know that, that play mobile games not because they they prefer mobile games to console games because the reality of it and that's why one of the reasons why I think Switch has been such wonderful. I think Switch is a wonderful gap bridge gap builder between mobile and, and and the console world and if anything if if anyone reacted to that to that boom in mobile gaming correctly and eventually i actually wonder if it was nintendo because it just they just they just created this strain this product that's that was that's a games console but not really it's not going to have the, the fancy gadgets and visuals of the big the big 
expensive core games devices but it's not it's not just a tap game either that's free to play and and it's sort of and the fact that so many and this is i remember i remember did i did a tweet i i I don't agree with it anymore but i did it in 2017 before the switch came out and i thought nintendo should be courting companies who are making mobile games not those that are making console games and in the end they sort of did both there's a lot, you know, you, you know, we talk about this, this. The only reason I'm talking about this is because of what James was just saying about um, um, uh, the Sky Children of the Light game is um, is is it is coming to Switch. And uh, because it's an obvious it's a step, it's the obvious step to go from mobile to Switch rather than mobile all the way up to the 400, you know, the, the PlayStation 5. Um, I don't know what my point was. I've lost track of my friend. <laughs> but yeah. I, I agreed with your point back when I thought you had one. Um, <laughs> I probably did. Don't remind me what it was. <laughs> so like seven or eight years ago, I, um, I found my, my free time really getting a, a lot uh, rarer. And, and I played Marvel Puzzle Quest on mobile. And I played that for a few years, actually, um, until just the, the business model of that and all mobile games that, that I was trying pretty much, uh, just pushed me away. Uh, and then I was there. So I, I picked up the, uh, the Vita and, and played it more and more cause I found it really fit into my life. And then when the switch came out, that became my go-to console. And I still, I still make time here and there for the, that sit down, you know, dedicate a few hours console experience. But like for the, for the most part, the switch is just what fits into my life a lot better. And it, it fills the sort of the, the, the hole that, that I think mobile games uh, fills for a lot of people, you know, you can sit there and, and play it while you've got, you know, you're like binge watching some old TV show on Netflix or whatever, and half paying attention to that. Mm. Um, it's, it's and, fascinating. The, the, psychological hooks that they can get in those mobile social games because i'm i'm same with you um same with you guys like i tend to play a lot of mobile games or certainly more than i think i do um and no i i still end up playing these free-to-play mobile social games despite the fact that i know i know i am not i'm not enjoying them i'm not enjoying them in a way that i enjoy console games or you know, you know like traditional games in like i went through a period like a good few years back like right I am not. I refuse to play, pay money in these free-to-play games unless I'm really enjoying them. And because I know that, to me, this is my own personal perception of value. This goes kind of back to uh, Chris's value point. Um, the, but yeah, the opinion piece he wrote. To me, if you're if I'm spending money on a free-to-play game, like for uh, you know consumables or a shield, a timed shield or whatever, to me that's almost like a sunk cost. In that 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 is, I'm not buying a game. I'm spending money on something for a very temporary boost and then I'm still going to need it afterwards because these games do not end. And that is the last thing that bothers me about mobile and social games personally is that they just do not end. So I was like, right, I'm going to stop doing this. Like, they, they don't end in terms of, like, there's no there's no sense of progression. There's no sense of, right, I have finished this game. I can move on to something else. They are just an, an endless, you know, mechanic to get you clicking so i went through a period of right i'm going to stop playing these games i'm going to start playing games. i'm actually going to buy premium games and start enjoying them premium and like in finishing games. them so i played so i get mobile game in mobile games yeah so i was playing I, you know florence goragoa framed i bought the banner saga and admittedly i never finished that and i kept meaning to 80 days i spent a ridiculous amount of time playing 80 days going around and around like playing through doing different playthroughs because every time you get back around the world that's that feels like a completion and that was scratching the itch i needed and yet i still find myself looking at the play store looking at right here's a 
399 game thinking mm, I don't know if I'm going to play that enough to warrant buying it oh hang on here's an idle game I can download for free and see what it's like and I'll find myself playing it intensely for about two three weeks and then I'll just I'll check and I'll, I'll I'll drop it and I'll play something else and I find myself looking like why what what is it about this that I am still playing this I'm doing it right now I, not right now we're recording but like yeah, at the moment I'm playing a game called Train Station 2 which is about running a railway empire and sending off resources and unlocking different regions and I, th- I trick myself into thinking ah well I'll just play it until I've completed this region and then I'll consider that game but no I'm still playing it I don't understand those psychological hooks and that unnerves is a strong word but like disorientates me that to, disorients do we, need, do we need to send you to a clinic James do you need to please be? please do yes <laughs> Well, I, th- I think there's a telling detail there, James. You mentioned some premium games. You mentioned Goragoa, 80 Days, Framed. What was the other one? Uh, Banner Saga. Um, I'm trying to remember the others. De- there are definitely more, because I went through... Well, yeah, but, 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 yeah but, but the point I'm making is that definitely two of those are not mobile games. They're PC games that came to mobile. There is... And, I, and I, one thing that struck me when reading Brendan's piece is whether or not <clears throat> all of this kind of fear and defensiveness that was evident back in GDC 2011. I don't know if a lot of game developers have got past this point yet with free-to-play and with mobile, um, honestly. You see some names here of people that are going over to that site. So you've got Brenda Brathwaite, Brenda Brathway, who was Brenda Romero back then, also worked with John Romero, a company called Loot Drop. Brendan Romero's last game was a PC game for Paradox Publishing. Um, you have... There are, there are other names in here. I had a few things written down... Um, people that ben cousins big free-to-play oh, yeah. mobile advocate there the last thing he did was was working at the outsiders which is console and pc company uh, a lot of these people um tried it and it didn't take and they came back to what they felt comfortable with so about you know the, the games you mentioned there there's the premium premium mobile games are actually premium pc games that were ported to mobile it's not really mobile games and i think fundamentally they're not really what defines the mobile market still they're kind of the aberrations they're not really what that platform uh, is really all about Um, one interview that I kept on thinking about when I was reading Brendan's column is one we did years ago with Sid Meier and there's a quote from Sid Meier which which I've remembered for a long long time because I've heard it encapsulated a problem that a lot of these you know PC and console people that were were towing the waters of mobile and social back when this happened. I mean, another name would be Richard Garriott, who started Portlarium as a Facebook company and, uh, and quickly pivoted back at, back to PC when when that didn't work out. Or he, you know, saw. I mean, you can, 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 there's a few question marks over whether Richard Garriott still has it has it or not. I suppose, but there's certainly multiple examples of, of designers who've, who've, who've experimented with that. Sid Meier was one, and he said this was around when he released um, his first ever mobile game which was Ace Patrol on iOS. And he said here, um, building monetization into your game design is not a totally comfortable thing for me. We really don't want to get into a situation where the two are in conflict, where to make my game more fun, I would do this, and to make my game earn more money, I have to do this. Um, Skipping ahead in his quote, we're trying to look for approaches to monetization where they help the game be more fun and don't conflict or be in opposition to the game. The game should be as fun as it can be. I think... Sid Meier made one more mobile game after that, and he hasn't made one since. Um, I think that there is something to that. I wonder if you 
ask all of these same people that were fretting about all of these problems back in 2011 whether they may not be as histrionic about it, they may not be as volatile in their comments, but I really don't think, I, I wouldn't be surprised if a great many of them feel roughly the same way they did, the, they did back then. The, the, this, con, this contradiction, this, this fear has not been resolved entirely to the point where they would feel confident working on, on that other platform, working in this new business model. When you look at when you look at mobile, when you look at Freezer Play, the, the companies that make it, they're not, you know, they're not all from people who were console developers for 20 years. Like a lot of them came from, from new thinking. Uh, I, I do think there is still kind of like this rift in the industry between the two, two sides. And actually, James, you, you published a, a piece today interviewing the founders of Calibri Games. It used to be Fluffy Fairy Games who made Idle Miner Tycoon, of all, of all things. And the, the first time I interviewed them was about... I think a year and a half to two years after they first started when Idle Miner Tycoon was blowing up. And one thing that struck me was that, you know, these people met at university, they were not doing a game design course, they had no aspirations to be game developers. I think they were doing an engineering course, they'd made a bunch of apps, none of them were games, there was all kinds of different things, health apps and all this. They just wanted to start a company, they just wanted to make money. And they entered into mobile and despite having virtually no background or study or anything in the field, they just pieced their way to selling their company to Ubisoft for, what was it, a couple of hundred million euros for that, four years later, and then one year after they sell it, they're gone. You know, so from not, you know, so from not even really wanting to start a games company to exiting a games company with, you know, a couple of hundred million in their pocket, all through mobile. Like, I don't know that that can happen anywhere other than mobile in the games industry. There's only one place where you can go in and it can be that squarely focused about earning money, earning revenue, earning profit. It can happen so quickly. It's a different thing. One of the things that Brenda Romero actually says in your piece, I think, is, uh, is quite telling. You can cut this out while I find the quote. Yes. So this is from a GDC rant session. Brenda Brathwaite uh, slash Romero um, was saying this was purportedly a defense of a mobile and social games. Uh, I think a reaction to some degree to comments like John Blow's social games are evil. Um, I have seen the strip miners make their entry into games. I have seen them exploit technology and new platforms, not for the purpose of crafting beautiful creative works, but for the purpose of taking the audience for all they can get. They are not one of us, nor are they from us. They are from another space. And then she effectively calls them an occupying force and then hopes that her and people like her who are just starting these new companies in the space will one day will someday be the occupying force to use her comments and of course she wouldn't be she'd uh, turn her back on the space and, and, and go back to what she was more familiar with and yeah I, I feel like it's an unresolved rift it's an unresolved tension that, that there is still is very much an industry divided for all that these games do cross platforms now that is all we've got time for. We're going to be back next week with your usual weekly news show. Uh, you can find all episodes that we have previously released, including the Game Developers Playlist and five games off spin-offs on your podcasting platform of choice. Until then, you can find more news, insight and analysis into the world behind video games at gamesindustry.biz. Second segment for this week is we are going to do our... Oh, I don't know where I was going with that. That is always the second segment for the week. <laughs>